This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Grab your Bible, turn to the book of Matthew this morning, if you would. We're continuing our series entitled Fear Less. We've taken a break from our uh, study of the book of Philippians uh, for just a little bit, but fear not, we will be back in uh, Philippians before you know it. Oh, you missed it. That was a good joke. The fear, fear not, we'll be back in, oh man. I thought at least I'd get one courtesy laugh out of that. That's terrible. Uh, if you don't have the Hui Kala app, I would highly encourage you to download it now to your mobile device because if you have the Hui Kala app, you click on uh, our series for Fear Less. You click on today's message. There's a button that says fill in notes. You can actually click on that. It's going to have every single thing that you see on the screen today. You can fill in some notes there. It also has all the verses that we're going to reference in our, our study this morning as well. And so I'd highly encourage you to do that. Take really good notes, whether you jot them down uh, in the margin of your Bible. Some people like to do that. If you have a journal that you bring with you to church, I highly, highly recommend you to uh, take notes as you hear the Bible preached. The Bible makes us the promise that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so the more that you hear the preaching of God's Word, the more that your faith will grow. Uh, I've I've been taking notes in, in church for the last two decades, and I love looking back at notes and things that I wrote down uh, from, from 10, 15, 20 years ago that God used in my life to shape me and shape my faith and shape my family. So I encourage you to take really good notes, refer back to them often. We found ourselves today in the book of Matthew chapter number six. We're smack dab in the middle of what's sometimes referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of mankind that we have record of. And you say, well, what makes it so good? Get this, okay? If you can wrap your, your brain around this. The word of God becomes a man and dwells among us. John chapter one tells us that, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word uh, was God. John chapter one, verse number 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So it refers to Jesus Christ as the word of God in the flesh. So imagine the word of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, tells a group of people, hey, gather around, I want to share something with you. And the word of God begins to preach the word of God. Like, it's like exponentially awesome at that point, right? If you could, I can't even fathom what it would be like to sit around and hear Jesus say things like, seek ye first the kingdom of God. It's just like, ooh, that's good stuff right there. Now, we read God's word. But to hear it preached by Jesus Christ, I can't fathom how great that that would be. Uh, my wife and I, when we had first uh, began dating, first gotten married, we were baby Christians. We didn't really know a lot about uh, living for Jesus and what that even meant for a family together and what our marriage should be because nobody taught us. We didn't have any premarital counseling. We were just trying to figure life out. I'd grown up in church my whole life um, and accepted Jesus as Savior as a nine-year-old boy. My wife had gotten saved at a Baptist revival when she was about 13 years old or so. Uh, and, and went to a church that did not preach the gospel, didn't preach the Bible, just taught a lot of morality and things like that. And so when she graduated high school, her grandmother had given her a Bible uh, as a graduation gift. And just, just know, giving someone a Bible as a gift, you can never go wrong. Never go wrong. And so when she was in college and she was confused and she didn't really know what was going on, she 
pulled the Bible off the shelf and began to read it. But she thought of some things that other people had told her, like the, the Bible uh, can't be trusted because it's been passed down so many times. It's changed hands and uh, it's been retranslated and parts of it have been lost. You don't really know what's there and what's good. And so uh, she believed that, which none of that is true. The Bible is good. It's authoritative. God promised to preserve his word forever and he has. And so if you have the Bible in your hand, you can trust it from cover to cover. Okay, that being said, she didn't know any of that because nobody ever taught her. But as she looked through the table of contents in the first few pages of the Bible, she saw the words of Christ in red. And she knew that everything that was in red in her Bible, Jesus said. And so uh, we're talking through this on, on probably the first few weeks of us dating. We're talking about our faith and Christianity and stuff like that. We were both Christians and we both knew that we were saved, but we didn't know a lot else outside of that. And she said, so really, I just began to go through the Bible until I found something in red, and I wanted to read that because I knew that Jesus had said it and I could trust it. And she said, do you know how far you have to turn through the Bible to get to something in red? Yeah. And she was like, but like, there's, there's like three quarters of it are all in black. Yeah, that's the Old Testament. What is that? Like, we don't have time for that right now, but we'll get to that later. But she said, so I waited till I found something in red, and she said, and I found it, and I just kept reading that over and over and over and over. And she goes, Jesus tells people how they can be blessed, and blessed are these people, and blessed are those people. And I said, yeah, that's a Sermon on the Mount. She's like, a Sermon on the what? And so she didn't know anything about the Bible, but she, to this day, one of her favorite books of the Bible is the book of Matthew, because at that time, it's all she knew. And so, again, here's baby Christian blind leading the blind with her. And I said, hey, you can read the whole Bible. It's all good. And she was like, well, what do you do with it? Well, you're supposed to obey it. I don't really do that, but you should. Uh, and that's <laughs> kind of no lie. That began our faith journey as a couple, and we wound up here where we are today. And so uh, I say that to say this, jumping off here. While this is probably the lengthiest portion of scripture where Jesus speaks continuously, uh, John 14, 15, and 16 will be another passage Jesus speaks for a lengthy period of time. All of the Bible is good, all of it. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means God breathed and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. You can take God's word to the bank. It's all good from cover to cover. So make yourself, I'll challenge you with this as well before we jump in, make yourself a student of God's word because it will change your life, guaranteed. So uh, read it, apply it, obey it. Matthew chapter 6. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, there's a lot of red here because uh, this is uh, what we again refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to start in verse number. <laughs> Let's start in verse number 24 uh, this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verse number 24. Jesus says, No man can serve two masters. For either he'll hate one and love the other, or else he'll hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That word mammon means money or materialism or the things of this world that are shiny. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on is not life more than meat and body more than raiment. When he says take no thought, he's saying don't worry about that. Don't be anxious for these things. Verse 26, behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, neither do they gather in barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take you thought for raiment, considering the lilies of the field, how they grow and they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. For if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, 
Shall he not much more clothe ye, O ye of little faith? Now, it's again important that Jesus connects being anxious and worrying about the future. End of verse number 30, O ye of little faith. So again, we cannot miss the correlation. We spent a lot of time this in our study on fear in this study, but fear, worry, anxiety, uncertainty, doubt, all get directly linked back to a lack of faith, which is problematic, especially for us that call ourselves Christians. Verse number 31. Therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall shall take thought for the things of itself sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. When we think of worry, anxiety, you might think to yourself, I'm not really a a worrying type of person. I'm not really that much of an anxious person. And I kind of thought that about myself as well. And um, earlier this year, I'd ordered some devotional books uh, for our church that I thought would be helpful. Um, One of them was dealing with anxiety. It's a little green book like this uh, guy right here called The Small Book for the Anxious Heart. And I never, ever, ever put anything in our our church bookstore or recommend a book that I have not read myself cover to cover because I want to make sure that what I'm giving out is good stuff. And so any book that you find in our bookstore, I personally read and have been personally helped by, and I think that you would be too. So I got this, I thought, I'll read through this before I I recommend it to anyone and, and offer it up. So I ordered one copy of it, and I thought, I'm not really an anxious person. I don't deal with worry. Let me read this cute little book and see what it says. And I get about three days into the daily devotional, I realize... I think I struggle with worry and anxiety. I didn't know that I did, right? Because it's not what it is on the surface. Like it's, it's not that you sit home on your couch and you're wringing your hands back and forth. It's that your heart is attached to things and your mind is consumed with and your priorities are misaligned with the things of this world and that causes worry. I've entitled today's message, Worry is a Joy Killer. Will Rogers once said a a humorous quote. He says, I know worrying works because none of the stuff I worried about ever happened. (laughs) Hey, I'll make sure that I worry about it because that takes care of everything, doesn't it? It's interesting if you study the origins of the word that we have for worry. It actually comes from a German word, uh, which is worgen, which means, get this, to strangle. And I don't know if you've ever felt in your life like during a time of intense worry and concern that you felt like you were being strangled, but I think that that's an accurate representation of what worry does to the life, especially of the Christian. Dictionary definition of the word worry is to disturb one or destroy one's peace of mind by repeated or persistent tormenting attacks. That's a harsh definition for a simple word like worry. You probably know someone who you might categorize as a worry ward, somebody who just uh, thinks about things negatively all the time, figures out the worst possible outcome, and then focuses on those things. You might look at that person and say, that's a person who worries a lot. That's not really me. That's not my personality. But here's what I do like to do. I like to plan things out. I like to know how everything's going to go, how everything's going to flow. I like to have a plan, and I like to have a backup plan, and I like to have a contingency plan for my backup plan. How many of you know what I'm talking about? That's you. I like things planned out, right? And I don't know about you, but I get really, really uneasy when it appears that no one is in charge of what's really going on, right? And it's just like, hey, I don't think anybody has a clue as to what's happening right here, Right? So, let me do what I do best. 
I'll take charge of the situation, right? I automatically nominate myself as the captain of this team to bring order to the chaos, right? Because somebody's got to figure this out and I nominate myself because obviously I'm the most qualified for something like that, right? It's interesting that we wouldn't think of that as worry, would we? We'd think of that as taking ownership, taking leadership, taking charge. We would think of like contingency plans for your contingency plans. It'd just be good planning. But what if, and here's the thing, I'm not against planning and contingency planning. We should. But what if we focused so much on what could possibly go wrong that we lost sight of all the things that were going right? That would be the idea behind worry. And again, Today, as we take a look at this message, I want to be really, really clear that God commands his children to be good stewards. So I'm all for financial planning. I'm all for having a budget. I'm all for retirement planning. I'm all for making good investments. I'm all for having a plan as far as where things are going and what you're doing. And uh, I'm all for keeping a calendar. I love to keep a calendar. But we cannot become beholden to those things because as we'll see in this passage here, that's not where us, for us as Christians, our trust lies. I like to, I like to have, keep a calendar, man. My wife turned me on to this and years ago. When we first met and we were dating, she was just like, oh, you should totally put this on your calendar. And I was like, I don't have a calendar. She was like, what? <laughs> like, she was like, I don't know if I can continue to date you if you don't have a calendar. She's like, what do you need a calendar for, right? And it's just like, calendar, like, I'm, I know where I'm going and know what I'm supposed to do. And she was like, no, you don't. She's like, your life is a, a disorganized mess. And then when we got married, she realized that she just really married a man-child. Uh, and so, uh, but she turned me on to, to calendar, keeping a list and stuff like that. And for a long time, I would keep it. Uh, my very first, some of you that are older like me will appreciate this. My very first ever calendar that I kept was on a Palm Pilot PDA a pop-out stylus on the side, and you wrote in these hieroglyphics that nobody could really understand. It was awesome. And you had to sync it with your computer every night, put it in a cradle, and hit the button, and it wouldn't sync. You have to go back there and unplug it and plug it back in, reinstall the drivers, and reboot it, and push the button and hope that it synced. Like, it was awesome. That's technology, right? And over the years, I, my, my calendar system on my phone has morphed and stuff like that, but I really, there's something about me that just loves a good paper calendar, you know, printed on nice, fine, white paper with a good pen. Man, just like a nice, my wife calls them bleedy pens, you know, those, those pilot pens that like bleed all over the page, they're gorgeous, and make everything that you write look awesome, right? artistic. Right? I love a calendar like that. And so I began writing a paper calendar. So I printed off on a sheet of cardstock every single week, my calendar for the week. And I wouldn't, <laughs> you're going to think I'm crazy, but some of you already knew that. I would no lie. I would take a ruler and draw out boxes for my calendar in pen, this beautiful pilot bleedy pen on my beautiful white cardstock of my week. Here's my appointments that I have going on. Here's uh, my study time that I have. I'm going to block off this time over here for some reading and study. I'm going to focus on my sermon prep over here. Got lunch with so-and-so over here. Got a counseling appointment over there. Got time with the family over here. Got this going on in my kid's school over here. And man, it was gorgeous. It was beautiful. Like it was something like you'd hang on the wall and go, that's a pretty nice looking calendar right there, right? But here's the problem. <laughs> Somebody would call and they say, hey, can we move lunch from Tuesday to Thursday? I have an opening there, but like I can't just like move it. Like, and just like somebody calls, hey, and we running 15 minutes late for for my appointment. Can you can I pick it up at, at two o'clock instead of 1:30? Well, I guess you could, but like it's just my calendar, you know. 
And so here's how savage my wife is. You know what she would do? She'd scribble it all out and then just draw a new box freehand with a smiley face in it. It's just like, what are you doing? Like, that's like next level crazy. Like if you have to mark something out, you put a single line through it, right? And you should probably get a ruler to draw that single line. Her, she's like, with like doodles at the end with a flower on the end of it. She's like, what are you doing? You can't do that. Like, so no lie. For like the first two weeks of my new calendar system, I would print out another calendar on a sheet of cardstock, lay it side by, you're, some of you are like, you didn't. I did. And because it was this beautiful thing that could not be messed up. Here's the problem. When you and I in life put together our plans for life, we generally write them in pen. And sometimes we chisel them in stone, right? This is what I gotta happen. And then when something comes along, you're just like, ah, oh, I, I, I can't do that because I got this going on. I, I, I could change, but I don't wanna change. I could fix it, but I don't want to. Or to, to go that route would mess everything else up. I'm gonna give you a tip for the Christian life. If you're going to write your plans for the rest of your life, first of all, be sure to write them in pencil and have adequate erasers on hand, right? Because God's going to change it. You want to make God laugh, tell him what you're not going to do, right? Just, and again, we have this idea that, that even when we pray about things that we're saying, hey, God, here's my plan for life. Would you please bless this and take care of this uh, steps one through 35 in the order that I have them listed? God doesn't work that way. But here's the thing, if we think God works that way, if we think that God has to do things the way that we have them planned and according to our timeline and according to our priorities, when it doesn't happen, that's going to induce a lot of worry and anxiety because it didn't fall in line with the plans that I got going on. And I don't know how this is going to work out because I didn't see this coming. But as we see in verse number 24 here this morning, we see that worry is really rooted in idolatry. It's interesting, sometimes people see this as, as disconnected parts, but you always have to read the Bible in context. You might hear when somebody's preaching about tithing or giving, they'll, they'll use verse number 24 to say, that no man can serve two masters, you can't serve God and money, and if you allow money to be your idol, then you, you can't serve God, and you need to make sure that you're faithful to God and use what God's given you. And, and I've even said uh, great platitudes that I'm sure I didn't get from myself, got from somebody else of uh, money is a great uh, servant, but it's a terrible master. Good stuff like that, right? And we get that from what Jesus is talking about here. But you forget that this is correct, connected to the rest of the context. When you read the Bible, you don't just get to pull one verse out and go, look at how beautiful this verse is. Let's just talk about that. You gotta read everything else around it. And so when Jesus talks about worry and not worrying about the future, it's directly connected back to the idea of where does your faith lie? Who is your God? Who is your master? Who calls the shots? Who's in charge? And worry only comes about in our life when God's not the one in charge. Because if you really believed that you have a heavenly father who loves you more than you can comprehend, if you really believe that you have a heavenly father who is totally sovereign over all creation and all events in all of world history, and you really believed that he knew your name, your address, where you're at, what you're going through, and he's got a plan to work it all out, you wouldn't sit there wringing your hands going, oh my goodness, I don't know what's going to happen here. I don't, I don't know how to get out of this mess that I'm in. I don't know what's going what's to happen next week or the week after that. You'd say, hey, this doesn't make any sense to me, but I'm glad God's in charge. 
But if our heart is steeped in the things of this world, if my bank account determines whether or not I'm okay or not, then my ability to trust is going to fluctuate from time to time as well. If my faith or my hope is in something other than God, it's going to fail. Man, if your hope for getting out of the mess that our world is in is the next government program that comes out, you're putting your faith in the wrong place. And here's the thing. It's only a very short matter of time before they let you down. And you realize, hey, wait, I don't think we're as stable as we thought that we were. Because you put your faith in the wrong place. Oh, if we could get more uh, conservatives elected into office, <laughs> you're putting your faith in the wrong thing. Now, I believe Christians should vote. I believe we should vote in accordance with our conscience and biblical mandates, 100%. Make your voice known. But whatever happens, my faith wasn't in politicians to begin with. My faith is in the Lord. My faith isn't in my bank account or how much money I have or how much retirement savings I have. My, my faith is not in what I can accomplish, how good I am, how smart I am. My faith is in the Lord, but worry is rooted in idolatry. Worry says that God's not in charge. Someone or something else is. And that's problematic. And it's interesting that when it comes to things like fear, we talked about this in week one, but it's also applicable to worry as well that our worry and fear are directly connected to the things that our heart loves. Automatically connected to it. <laughs> My wife one time said that she had a dream when she was a kid that the, the world ran out of ketchup. And she said for the next week, everywhere she went, she was hoarding ketchup packets because she really thought, like, the, the world's going to run out of ketchup. Why was that a fear for her? Because she loves ketchup. Like, I married a woman who puts ketchup on her ketchup, right? She, she goes to a restaurant, and she'll take barbecue sauce and mix it in with her ketchup. I mean, she's like queen of sauces, right? But here's the thing. That was near to her, so that was a real fear. How many people in this room this morning, just by show of hands, are worried about grain prices on the mainland right now? You know why? Because we're not farmers, right? You don't have farmland on the, the mainland that you're worried about grain prices and what inflation is going to do that. You know why? Because it doesn't matter to us. So nobody lost sleep this weekend thinking about grain prices, right? You know why? Because it doesn't directly affect you. But some of you lost sleep thinking about, am I going to have a job next month? Are they going to move me into a different department where I'm not capable of doing that? Some of you thought to yourself this week of, Hey, how much longer is all this going to go on, and do I have what it takes to go the distance? Some of you worried this week about whatever's coming next after this particular variant that we have that could possibly kill you. But worries always and fear are always tied to the things that matter to us. Do you worry as a parent that your kids won't grow up to love and serve God? I do. You know why? Because it's very near and dear to my heart. Do you worry that your kids won't get into an Ivy League college and make six figures right out of college? I don't. You know why? Because I don't care about those things. That's not a worry for me. I worry that my kids will grow up and not love Jesus. That bothers me. That keeps me up some nights. Do I worry that I'm not loving my wife the way that I should? I worry about that. You know why? Because it's very near and dear to my heart. I don't worry about, you know, the political unrest in South Africa. You know just doesn't affect me. So what are we really getting at here? We're getting at this. When you begin to be overcome with anxiety, fear, 
worry, you need to ask yourself this question. Why? Why am I so worried about that? Why is that so important to me? Oh, I'm just worried about this presentation I got this week that I'll look like an idiot. Why? Because I don't want to look like an idiot. Why? And so we get, have to unpack those things and, and dissect them and figure out what does this really mean to me? And here's the problem, though. Many times those things will point back to carnality in our lives. Maybe I don't want to look like an idiot because I'm very concerned about what other people think about me. That's rooted in pride. Maybe I want to make a good impression because I want to make a name for myself. That's rooted in pride. Maybe I'm worried about what others think of me because I have the fear of man. The Bible calls that a trap. Or maybe I just want to do my best because I want to honor the Lord. I want people to know I'm a Christian. I want to do my best because I think that would please God. That's not a bad thing. But we have to, again, we've got to unpack and figure out the why. And make sure that our why is not rooted in idolatry. Jesus tells us in verse number 27, I love what he says here. Which one of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? How many of you can grow six inches just by thinking about it? You can't. What does that have to do with anything? Because worry is not a strategy or a solution. <laughs> worry, worry doesn't do anything productive. And worrying doesn't do anything. And Jesus says, can you worry and get taller? No. You have no control over those things. Well, who does have control over how tall you are? Hmm. Maybe your creator. So what you're saying is God's in charge? Yeah. So worry isn't a strategy. It's not a solution. It doesn't fix anything. Worry, if anything, creates more problems. Worry, if anything, compounds our anxiety, compounds our fear, because we think through a million and one what-ifs. Worry often asks for more information so we can develop a contingency plan in the event that God doesn't show up, right? Worry says, hey, I need to be really well-versed in all of everything that's going on so that I can figure out a way out of this in the event that God doesn't do what he's supposed to do. Hey, I can't pay my rent this month, so I've got to figure out if God doesn't come through and provide for me what I'm going to do to actually pay my rent. Hey, i got a family member that's sick, and I'm praying that God will heal them, but if God doesn't come through, I've got to figure out what i got to do. And we think errantly that more information will cause us to worry less. But how many of you know the more information you have, the more you have to worry about, Right? Man, I remember when, when the coronavirus first came out, they were getting given all the symptoms of it, right? You don't know what it looks like. You get sick, you have trouble breathing, you know, you get a fever. And then you lose your sense of taste and smell. Man, I'm opening up my coffee every morning going, okay, I'm good. I'm good for today, right? And like I'm thinking every single day, I hope I don't got it, I hope I don't got it. Every time I get a tickle in my throat or feel like a heaviness in my chest, I go, Break open a cup of coffee and smell it. I need more information so I can figure this whole thing out, right? When our daughter was in the hospital, she had an MRI, and um, they, they were doing a scan of her head and her neck and stuff like that. And so we're in there, and taking them some time, get them situated, get all the pictures that they want and stuff like that. And we're done. The tech comes in. He's like, okay, you guys are done. I'll, I can take you guys back to your room. And I said, hey, man, what would you see? 
And he was like, oh, I can't tell you, I'm just a tech. Bro, you know and I know, you look at these pictures all day. You know what's supposed to be there, you know what's not supposed to be there. What did you see? And he was just like, I, I, the doctor's going to read it. It's probably going to be 30, 45 minutes. He'll have an answer for you guys. He'll, he'll give, be able to give you more information. Bro, blink once for yes, blink twice for no. I'm not asking you to give me a medical diagnosis. I'm just telling you, tell me what you see, man. Why? So that I can worry less or I can worry more, right? More information would cause me to worry less, so just give me more information. Or what if he says, I saw some stuff and it's not good. Well, now I'm going to worry more. What did you see? How big was it? How bad is it, right? Again, worry gives this errant idea that if you get more information, you won't be worried anymore. But that really isn't the case. Because worry isn't a matter of not enough or too much information. Worry is a problem of where does my faith lie? That's problematic. And so it's not a matter of getting more information. It's a matter of trusting the information that we already have. And that, that is this, God is in charge. Now again, for us as Christians, it's come down to a matter of faith for us. Am I going to trust or will I worry Jesus makes a delineation between the saved man and the unsaved man. Those that are Christians, those that are children of God, and those that are not, in verse number 32, Jesus says that the unsaved man worries about material things. He says, verse number 32, for these, the Gentiles, for after these things do the Gentiles seek, speaking of those that are not followers of God, those that are, would be considered pagans, they worry about the things of this world. Let me just tell you this, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you're here today and there's never been a time in your life where you've accepted Christ as Savior, you should worry about the things of this world because this is all you get. You should be greatly worried about the things that come after this life because that's when things go from bad to worse than you could possibly imagine. So, if you're not a Christian... And none of us are born Christians. You might say, well, I was born into a Christian family. Your parents might have been Christian, but that doesn't make you Christian by virtue of your parents being a Christian. Oftentimes in talking about my faith with people, I ask somebody, hey, if you died today, do you know for sure that you go to heaven? And anytime someone says yes, I say, how do you know that? And, and there's only one right answer, by the way. I'm going to save that till the end. Keep you in suspense, right? <laughs> You're like, uh, I think I already know the answer. That's fine. Don't tell anybody else. <laughs> but sometimes I'll have people say, I know that I'm going to heaven because my great-grandfather and my grandfather were both pastors. What does that mean for you? Well, I mean, like, it's like in my blood. No, actually, sin is in your blood, believe it or not. Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, sin entered into the world and sin and death passed upon all men for all have sinned. The only thing you got from your parents was a sin nature. Well, you know, my dad was a pastor. I don't, I don't care who your dad was. It doesn't matter. What about you? Well, I'm a good person. Eh, wrong answer. I'll try to do good stuff. Eh, wrong answer. I was baptized as a kid. Eh, wrong answer. How do you know for sure that you're saved? How do you know for sure that you're born again? How can any of us know for sure that we're children of God? Great question. None of us are born that way because the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
Romans chapter 5 tells us that we are all enemies of God. Not all children of God, all enemies of God because of our sin nature. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 goes so far as to say this, for the wages of sin is death. Not just a physical death where we die one day, but a spiritual death. And after this, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. If you're not saved, if you have not been born again, you must pay for your sin. How do you pay for your sin? The second death. The Bible says that there's coming a great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. All whose names were not found written in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. This is the second death. That's how you pay for your sin. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go to hell. And I can speak for myself. I don't want you to go to hell or anybody that I know to go to hell. So, good news is, God doesn't want us to go to hell either. So here's what God did. Romans chapter 5, verse number 8. But God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, I was supposed to die. Jesus died in my place. I was supposed to be punished for my sin. Jesus was punished for me. I was supposed to endure God's wrath and judgment. Jesus took it upon himself. The Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took my sin and he paid for it once and for all. But it requires a choice on your part. If you're here today and there's never been a time in your life where you've accepted Christ as Savior, please listen up. This is the most important information you will ever hear in this life and the next. If you die without Jesus Christ as your Savior, there is no second chances, there is no hope, there's only God's judgment and punishment for you in hell. But if today you would put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I believe that he is the Son of God. I believe that he rose again the third day, and I trust him to forgive my sins. You can be saved today. Not a matter of joining our church. It's not a matter of becoming a Baptist or getting baptized. It's not a matter of, of going through a class. It's not a matter of, I'm, I don't think I'll ever sin again for the rest of my life. It's a matter of knowing for sure that your sins are forgiven by Jesus and Jesus alone. No church could ever do that. No religious works could ever do that for you. How can you know for sure your sins are forgiven? Because Jesus Christ died for my sins and he is my savior. For those of you that were waiting for the correct answer, that was it. Anybody says, hey, I'm I'm going to heaven when I die because of the church that I grew up in or because of the church that I attend or because I've been baptized or because I took the Lord's Supper or something like that. Hey, look, all those are wrong answers because Jesus said this. John chapter 3, verse number 3, no man shall enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Well, I think my church helped me be born again. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus Christ says he's the only way to heaven. And so if you're here today without Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have every reason to worry. You have every reason in the world to be fearful. And you have every reason in the world to have uncertainty and doubt by all means, because it's bad right now. It's going to get worse the longer that you live, and the day that you die, it's going to get exponentially worse than you can possibly fathom. So by all means, be fearful. But for those of us that are Christians, what do I have to fear? God is my Father, and Jesus says here in verse number 35, or verse number 34, my Father already knows what I need before I ever even ask it. So the unsaved man puts his, his stock in the things of this world. You see, worrying about material things is not something that Christians should do. 
Oh, I worry if I'm going to have enough money. I worry if I'm going to have something to eat. I worry if I'm going to have a place to stay. But Jesus says, if you're a child of my Father, you don't have to worry about those things. That's what the people without God as their Father worry about. Colossians chapter 3, verse number 1 says, if ye thee been, if ye thee been, if ye then be. There we go. Risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of the Father. Set your affection on the things above, not of this earth. You see, when we become enamored with the things of this world, we lose our contentment. And a lack of contentment is always a heart issue. <laughs> My wife and I, when we got married, um, we didn't have a lot. I, was, uh, I just made E5 in the Navy. Um, I had no savings whatsoever, none. I blew my paycheck every time it came in. We get married, I have no money to my name. It's our first Christmas. And so we go to buy a Christmas tree and uh, we go to the Sears at Pearl Ridge. Uh, man, good times at the Sears Pearl Ridge. Um, and so we go there to buy a meager Christmas tree because we're broke. And so we're looking at these trees and stuff like that. And we finally found the cheapest, dinkiest artificial tree because I made the decision that we would have an artificial tree. I don't want to hear it. Some of, some of you think like, does this guy even Christmas? I promise you I do. Dinky little tree, terrible. We go up there to the, the, the cash register to ring us up. And the lady says, uh, Hey, it's going to be you know seventy four ninety five or whatever it was. She said, but you can save ten percent today if you open up a Sears card. Seven fifty? That's that might as well have been seventy five dollars itself. Absolutely, sign me up. Ten percent? I'd love to. <laughs> no lie, she has me fill out the form, and I fill out the form. She punches it in the computer, and she rips off a receipt and slides it across the table that would change the next ten years of my life. It says. You've been approved for $12,000. Put that tree back, girl. We're getting a good tree for Christmas this year, right? We're rich. We just went from being broke to being like $12,000. So no lie, we went and got this big, huge tree. I mean, it's eight foot tall, big around. It looks like a real tree. Like people see it and they're like, that's not a real tree. It's not. It's the most expensive fake tree known to man. <laughs> now, mind you, to this day, 22 years later, that's still our Christmas tree every single year. So we got our mileage out of it. We paid for it uh, monthly for a long time. Uh, <laughs> but here's the thing. We, we like, hey, and she was just like, we're, if we're going to upgrade the tree, I saw a nativity scene over here too. Get the nativity scene. Like, we, we need new lights. We got a bigger tree. We need more lights. Like, load it up, right? Now, mind you, we still have that nativity scene to this day. But that kicked off a series of like, hey, we deserve this. We need this. Hey, we can't have just like a the bachelor kitchen table that I have, we need like a family kitchen table now, right? For all of our children that we have as newlyweds, right? All the people we're going to have over, we should get a nice six-top dining room table and chairs. So guess what? Sears also has a home world. What? I got $12,000 that I didn't have 10 minutes ago. Let's go find a new dining room table. What was the problem? The problem is you shouldn't give stupid people money that they don't have. <laughs> problem number one. You know what the other problem was? A heart problem with me. Lack of contentment. 
I couldn't say, sweetheart, this is our first Christmas. I don't care. We can get us a little tabletop Christmas tree at Walmart if you want. But at that point, my wife had not yet been turned on to the evils of Target. Uh, and so we could say a little bit tabletop Christmas tree. It's just the two of us. We don't need a big tree. No, we didn't. We said, hey, if we're going to do our first Christmas, we should do it right, right? Big tree, nativity scene and everything, right? Stupid, stupid, stupid. And then guess what? That fed into like, hey, we can't afford it, but maybe we can get a, fill out a card. Hey, maybe we can save 10%. That 10% charged me 25% interest for like the next 10 years. That was not a deal. But what was it? It all went back to foolishness on my part, ignorance, and a lack of contentment. I'm not thankful for what God's given me. I want more. But here's what Jesus says. That's how the unsaved man thinks. Christians don't think like that. Christians say, hey, our Father's given us exactly what we need for today. When Jesus teaches the apostles to pray, he doesn't say, hey, give us this day our monthly bread. Give us this day our yearly bread. What does he say? Give us this day our daily bread. Just what we need for today. That's it. But contentment is a hard issue. And we need to ask ourselves when we're craving more and more and more and more, what's the reason behind that? And again, we can super spiritualize our reasons. I want to make more money so that I can take better care of my family. Maybe that's the case. Maybe it's not. Maybe it is idolatry. Maybe it is a need for success or a need for the things of this world. But we've got to check our hearts for sure. I love what Hebrews chapter 13 says, verse number 5. Let your conversation or the way that you live your life be without covetousness. Don't desire the things that everybody else has. And here's what he says. And be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. We sometimes, again, chop off part of the context of that. We say, oh, the Lord's promised to never leave us or forsake us. That promise is directly related to contentment. So I don't need the things that this world has to offer because I have Jesus. So he says. That's like a mind-blowing concept for most of you. Like, hey, I don't need a brand spanking new car. I've got Jesus. Hey, I don't need my coworkers to think well of me, that I'm better than them or smarter than them or anything like that, because I've got Jesus. I don't need to puff myself up to make myself into somebody that I'm not, because I've got Jesus. Contentment is found in the person of Christ. Incredible idea. But here's what else Jesus says about worry. I love verse number 34. Take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Here's the idea with that. Tomorrow will have its own set of problems. Don't bring them into today. Oh, I don't know what's going to happen next week. <laughs> Worry about it next week. Now, again, I'm not discouraging you from planning. Every Monday I sit down and I plan out my week, what I'm going to do every single day of the week from the, the time that I spend with God to the time that I go to the gym to what I'm going to eat uh, to the uh, appointments that I have to how I'm going to study and read and prepare for the messages and times I'm going to get together with people and share the gospel, times I'm going to get together and spend with my family, times I'm going to spend with my kids. I, like, I calendar it out. I write it out in pencil, but I write it out every week. I'm not talking about don't plan things out, but here's the thing. I'm not going to worry about those things. I'm not going to allow those things to become my master. I'm not going to allow these things to dictate whether or not I have a good day or a bad day. I'm going to just focus on today. Well, what about what happens next week? I don't know. We'll worry about that next week. 
<laughs> so many people are like, oh my goodness, the Delta variant's here. Yeah, guess what? I don't know if you read the news last week, but the Lambda variant has been found in Japan. And it's supposedly worse. <gasps> what will we do if it makes it here? I don't know. We'll worry about it when it gets here. And guess what? When it gets here, I probably won't worry about it even then. You know why? Because there's 10 million things that could kill me today. Don't worry about one of them. Like, I'm more worried about getting hit in a crosswalk here. <laughs> if you see people drive here, you would be worried too. <laughs> no lie. I used to, uh, when we first moved to, to Honolulu, I bought a road bike. I used to, to uh, do triathlons when I lived in California. I bought a road back here. I rode it twice in town. I almost got hit both times. I was just like, I don't want to die on a bicycle, you know? Like, if I want to go out, like, give me, like, a sports car with the top down or something like that. But, like, I don't want to die on a bicycle. And so this is no lie. I sold the bike to a guy who was in our church at the time. The first time he took it out, he was riding on the bike lane on King Street. He got hit and broke his shoulder. I thought to myself, my goodness. Like, I'm so glad I didn't get hit and bro break my shoulder. I'm glad it was Jim, not me. Uh, but here's the thing. Oh, I, I shouldn't ride a bike then because bikes are dangerous. Hey, walking down the street's dangerous. Walking up a flight of stairs is dangerous, you know? People are like walking around holding babies around here. You know how dangerous it is to hold a baby? Goodness. Like, and to bring a baby in public in the midst of the greatest pandemic known in modern history? So dangerous. Hey, look. My father knows exactly what I need. I ain't going to worry about it. Here's the thing. My kids, they don't even belong to me. They're not even my kids. They're the Lord's. They don't belong to me. I'm just going to steward them well. I want to do what I need to do. Now, again, I'm not minimizing taking precautions and being safe and things like that. Again, the Bible commands us to walk in wisdom. I just want to be wise. That's all. I'm not going to worry, though, because here's the promise of God's word. If I walk in wisdom... God's going to take care of the rest. If I do what God says, he's going to take care of the details. So for me, I'm not going to worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. I'm just going to enjoy today. A quote's been said before that worry doesn't empty today of its problem, or tomorrow of its problems, it empties today of its joy. Worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its problems, it empties today of its joy. And so I'm just going to focus on today. It's what Jesus says in verse number 34. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to have its own problems. Because worry causes us to overlook the blessings of today and forecast the doom of tomorrow. Oh, things are going to get so much worse around here. How do you know? How do you know? Man, I don't know about you guys, but like it, it stresses me out. stresses me out. I'm not trying to be facetious. It stresses me out. When I see things like, 1,100 cases of COVID. And like you look at the, the graph, like there's never been a spike like the, the spike that there is now. Oh my goodness. Like I look at that and it's just like, ah, like I don't even want to see that, you know? I forget how many thousands of cases we've had just in the last seven days, you know? Hey, look, what does that mean for the way that we live life? Does it mean we're going to go back to a lockdown? I don't know and frankly I don't care. I'm just going to focus on today. You know what I got to do today? I got together with my family, you guys. And I got to sing about our risen Savior. That my hope is not in my governor or my mayor. My hope is in the risen King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus Christ is my living hope. 
I got to sing about that today. I got to sing today about all the garbage that I've ever done in my entire life and all the terrible decisions that I've made and my desire for materialism and my stupid financial decisions. And I get to look at that and say, praise Jesus that Calvary covers it all. All of my guilt and shame Jesus took upon the cross. He put it to death once and for all. I ain't got to carry that no more. I got to say that today. I don't care about what's happening tomorrow or the day after that or what rules come down and things like that. I'm just going to focus on today, and I'm blessed today. God is good today. I'm going to focus on that. Well, my kids might get sick in the future. Your kids will get sick in the future. And when your kids get sick, you don't get to say, God's still good. Well, something might come in the future financially that I'm not prepared for. It will. And when it happens, you say, God is still good. Come on. Are we Christians or not? Yes then Jesus says we act different. Our faith, our hope is in a different place. Worry never helped anybody. I love what uh, Psalm 94, verse number 18 says, when I said my foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. When I thought I was gonna fall, your mercy held me. And in the multitude of my thoughts within me comforts the delights of my soul. (laughs) Again, in the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. How many of you have ever had a time in your life, by, by show of hands, raise your hands if this is you. There's been a time that happened, something that happened to you in your life one time that you said, this is it. Like, I'm done from here on out. My life will never be the same. It's over for me. There's no getting past this. There's no getting out of it. This is, it's done. I'm, I'm done with at this point. Raise your hand if that was you. Okay, put your hands down. How many of you, God brought you through it? Raise your hand. Oh, like, like 100% of us, right? It wasn't the end, was it? Guess what? When difficult times come, you need to remember that. Hey, God brought me through some dark days before where I thought I was sunk. I thought I was done. I thought it was over with. I thought, you don't get to recover from this. But guess what? God brought me through it. And so when my foot slips, God's mercy upholds me. And God's goodness, his kindness is the comfort to my souls, what the Bible says. But get this. The peace... The release from the worry and anxiety comes from having the proper priorities. Peace comes from the proper priorities. Here's what I mean by that. Verse number 33 in this passage is a verse that you should circle, you should star, you should underline, you should commit to memory, you should print it out on a sheet of paper and hang it on your mirror, you should go on Etsy and have this put on some canvas and you should hang it in your house. Like, seriously, that's how big this is. This is one of the great promises of God's word this is one of the great promises to the Christian aside from our salvation and the fact that our hope is sure in Jesus Christ for our eternal destiny this is one of the greatest promises that we find in the New Testament but get this okay it's a conditional promise that means you got to do your part and then God will do his part and if you don't do your part God doesn't do his part it's this but Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. I'll give you the summary of this. Put God first. Do what he says. He'll take care of the details. Simple. But see, here's the problem with this. A couple of problems. Sometimes people like to paraphrase this verse. Well, the Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. That's not what it says. 
you skipped a really important part. Again, because it's a conditional promise, you have to first seek the kingdom of God. In other words, my priorities are not based on the things of this world. My priorities are on the things that God prioritizes. So I don't care about your flashy cars. I don't care about your fancy house. I don't care about your Instagram-worthy vacation that you took. Those things aren't important. I'm going to focus on the things that God says are important. I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God. And I'm going to seek His righteousness, which is what? Doing what He says. Obedience to the Word. Okay? And if you do those things, you live with a kingdom priority, prioritizing the things that God prioritizes, and you obey Him and you do what He says. You know what He's promised? He'll take care of everything else. Everything. So don't sweat it. But, get this, because it's conditional. If you don't seek the kingdom of God first, and you don't do what He says, He's not obligated to give you anything. Nothing. So you might not have what you need. And I don't know about you, but every single time that I've come up short and have not had what I needed, it was never a failure on God's part. When Angela and I in the early days of our marriage couldn't figure out how we were going to pay our bills, it wasn't because God didn't come through for us. It's because we were stupid with what God gave us. God's failure is my failure. I wasn't doing with it what God told me to do with it. I was seeking first my kingdom. And I was seeking what I wanted to do. And then I expected God to come through for me. It doesn't work that way. God's promises don't work that way. And if you go through the Bible, there are very few unconditional promises that God has. God gives us a promise of salvation and eternal life, but it's conditional upon your faith and repentance. You gotta, you gotta do your part. So again, if you get your priorities straight, everything else can, can work itself out. Here's the thing. In the midst of a trial and a storm and difficulty and fear, uncertainty, and doubt, if you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and you're putting God first, you can have peace like a river. Because it's like, hey, I'm doing everything I know I'm supposed to do. But let me just tell you this, one of the most unsettling places to be in your entire life is to know when you are rebelling against God, you're doing your own thing, you're going your own way, you're walking your own path, and then trouble comes, it's just like, I am up a creek without a paddle. And I don't have peace like a river, I feel like I'm in the raging rapids and I'm just toast. You know why? Because you didn't follow the plan, you didn't trust the process. And you don't have that peace because you didn't follow the promise. And so our peace is based on the promise. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I, I can't tell you how many times I use this verse in helping people figure life out. Hey, are you putting God first? Yeah. Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Yeah. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Got to work it out. Now, we got to be careful with that. Because again, errant theology of who God is will lead us astray in promises like this. For example, in talking with single adults who greatly desire to be married or to have children or a family of their own, you can say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Oh, so that's how I get a husband? <laughs> that's not what it says. Oh, that's how I get a wife? That's not what it says. Because the Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. That's a promise again. But again, the condition is that you delight yourself in the Lord. And so here's the, the big idea. God 
is never, let me say this, God is never obligated to give you anything. When you feel like God owes you one, you have greatly misunderstood the Scriptures. When you feel like, I'm just going to give God a list of the stuff that I want, and He's going to do it because I'm, I'm, tr- I'm trusting in Him, you don't understand how God works. Because God is a loving Father, He gives you exactly what you need. And it might be different from what you want. For example, if you were to ask my daughter, Makili, sweetheart, what do you want for dinner? She'll say, Oreos. <laughs> That's not dinner. <sighs> okay, Doritos. That's not dinner. And why? Why don't I let her do that? Because I'm a terrible person? Well, she's trying to do the right thing. She's trying to be a good daughter. She's trying to do what she's supposed to do. Why can't she just have Oreos for dinner? Because it's not what's best for you. You can't live like that. So we're going to have a protein. We're going to have a carbohydrate. And if I'm feeling really nasty, I'll make you vegetables. Because I know what's good for you. I'm your father. You can't eat three meals of Oreos. Now, because I'm a good father, do I let her have Oreos sometimes for dinner? Sure. Once every six months because I'm a good dad. I want her to enjoy life. And here's the thing. Does God sometimes give us things that we don't need but we can enjoy? Absolutely. You know why? Because he's a good father. The Bible tells us God's given us all things richly to enjoy. God's not just like, oh, you just need like the bare minimum. I'm just going to give you the bare minimum. No, he's a good father. He's like, I want to give you good stuff, but as long as you're using them for the kingdom. And so again, because God's a good father, he will give you exactly what you need if your priorities are in the right place. But we need to remember that provision comes from the Lord. I don't get stuff from the world. God gives me everything that I have. We haven't gotten there yet, but in our study in the book of James on Sunday nights, we're going to get to James chapter 1 where it says, every good and every perfect gift cometh from above. Everything good you have in your life came from God, not because you might say, no, that's not true. Uh, I'm, I'm a hard worker. I'm the hardest working guy. I didn't, nobody ever gave me anything. I pulled myself by my, by my own bootstraps. You know who gave you the strength to pull on those bootstraps and who gave you the bootstraps? The Lord did. Has God blessed your work? Maybe so. But please understand, you haven't received anything that you didn't receive from the Lord. And so again, I can worry about, oh, am I going to have enough? Am I going to be enough? Am I going to get enough? Or I can just say, hey, God's going to give me exactly what I need. And frankly, I need a lot less than I think that I do. I don't need a big Christmas tree with a nativity scene. I need a lot less than I think that I need. But again, it comes back to having the right heart and right priorities. (laughs) You see, we don't get stuff by pursuing stuff. We get God's best by pursuing Him. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things shall be added unto you. Oh, so how do I get stuff from God? Yeah, it doesn't work that way. Because again, I I really want to drill this idea in your head. More than you want what this world has to offer. More than you want a new car. More than you want fancy clothes more than you want an incredible vacation, more than you want status, more than you want accolades, more than you want any of the material things that this world has to offer, your heart and soul craves love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Where do those things come from? They come from your Father, who's given you the Holy Spirit inside of you. 
That's what you crave. Jesus says again, verse 34, the unsaved man craves the garbage that this world offers, but you got something better. And your Father will give you exactly what you need. And just know this, I love another promise from Psalm 37, verse number 23. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. You know, that means, it means the steps of a good man are ordered from the Lord. God doesn't give you what you want. God gives you what's best for you. Remember last March, we met with a group of, of guys, uh, in our, men in our church, to talk about the things they were saying about this upcoming pandemic. And because, again, I'm a planner, and I like to give things names. We couldn't just have a group of guys that got together to talk about the pandemic. We created the PRT, the Pandemic Response Team. You've got to have a cool name. We only met once, and we didn't really do a lot, but uh, we met. We had a name that was important, and an acronym, a cool-sounding acronym at that, which also could be synonymously for the physical readiness test, but not the same thing. Uh, Pandemic response team, PRT, right? And so we met, and we began to talk, and and I said, guys, we we can't shut down our church for weeks. It doesn't work that way. Like, hey, look, I realize we've never seen anything like this before, but they're telling us we've got to shut down for two weeks to flatten the curve, like two weeks. We can't shut down for two weeks. Little did we know two weeks will turn into 12 weeks. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, man, it's my job to instill faith. Hey, guys, keep trucking, stay connected, do our online Bible studies that we're having, gather around the computer for church on Sunday morning. All the while I'm thinking to myself, when we do get back together, what are we going to have left? And what we had left, we had about 50% of the church that we started with. <clears throat> that was hard. And I began to think, God, you didn't know what you were doing. We had like a good thing going on before this happened. You're like, what's, what the world? But here's what the Bible says. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. So either God knows what he's doing or he doesn't. God knows what he's doing. So what happened? We just continue to plug away and keep doing what we're doing. Did you know, and I don't, I don't do this to brag, I just do this to say how good God is. Did you know that our Sunday morning attendance right now is about 130% what it was March of 2020? 130%. Well, we were 50% when we came back and we're now at 130%. What, what is that? That's the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. God didn't give me what I wanted. God gave me what was best for me. God didn't do what our church wanted. God did what was best for our church. So what do we need to do? Stop wringing your hands and just trust the Father. He knows what he's doing. Trust him. Four final thoughts and we're done really quick. First of all, trust in the Lord. If you're taking notes, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Memorize it. Commit it to memory. Another great promise from God's word, but again, a conditional promise of God's word. Matthew 6, 33 Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 are two of the verses that I reference the most when helping people find direction in life. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 has three steps and a promise. Here's your part that you've got to fulfill. God will do his part. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Number one, lean not into your own understanding. Number two, in all your ways acknowledge him. Number three, and the promise, he'll direct your path. But what happens if you don't trust in the Lord? What happens if you lean to your own understanding? What if you don't acknowledge him in every way? He's not going to direct your path. It's conditional. Trust in the Lord. He's your father. If you're a child of God, he's your father. He knows what's best for you. Just trust him. You don't have to worry. Next, refocus your heart. Our heart has a tendency to drift back to the things of this world. I have a friend who calls this creeping idolatry. 
place. Nobody purposely like takes a 180 and goes the opposite direction. People do it, but not very often. It's usually a creeping idolatry that I begin to like stuff, and I like more stuff, and I need a little bit more stuff. And then before I know it, my heart is like gone the opposite direction. So I got to make sure that my heart's focused. When I begin to worry, I got to ask myself the question, why am I worrying? What am I so concerned about? And that'll expose my heart. Maybe there is some idolatry there. I got to figure it out, but I got to make sure that my heart gets back to where it goes and my heart's back to my Father. Next, focus on being close to Jesus today. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I'm going to tell you, walk with Jesus today and you'll be prepared for tomorrow. I'm going to focus on my relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm going to make sure that everything's 100% right between he and I. There's no unconfessed sin in my life. I'm not living in rebellion. I'm obeying his word. And if I do that, then I can trust him. And walking with Jesus will always prepare you for tomorrow. If you had caught me 20 years ago and said, Anthony, you're going to pastor a church one day, I would have been like, bro, I don't even go to church regularly. Like, what are you talking about? So this idea of having like long-range planning for life and stuff like that just doesn't even make sense because the person that you'll be in 10 years from now is not the person that you are today. And so you know what Angela and I decided to do 20 years ago that was kind of crazy for us? We just decided whatever God told us to do, we would just do it. Simple as that, just obedience. And we decided to walk with Jesus every single day, every day. We'll walk with Jesus today, and we'll walk with Jesus on Monday, and we'll walk with Jesus on Tuesday, we'll walk with Jesus on Wednesday. And guess what? The more that we walk with Jesus, the stronger our faith grows. And the more our life begins to change. And we're not the same people that we were. Look, the woman that I married is not the same woman that I married. The, the guy that she married, not even remotely close to the guy that she married. Why? Because God's changed us over decades of just walking with Jesus every single day. You know, figure out how to be in dead center in God's will 10 years from now. Be in God's will today. Wake up tomorrow. Focus on tomorrow, tomorrow. Focus on Tuesday, on Tuesday. Just one day at a time. And guess what? You'll wake up 10 years from now dead center in the middle of God's will because you did what you're supposed to do today. And again, nobody likes to hear that because we want the big payoff right away. You know, we all want like 10-minute abs, right? Like we, we all want like the quick, what's a quick way? There's no quick way to walking with Jesus. There's no quick way to getting rid of worry other than trusting your Father for what you need every single day. That's the only way to do it. Author Ed Welch, who wrote this little green devotional book here, said this, the God of grace is very personal and active. He's especially attentive to those who are needy, he delights in giving gifts and power to them. Call out in your need, and you'll be heard. That's what the Bible says, right? You have a father who loves you, who cares about you, who knows exactly what you need. Just call out and ask for what you need, and he'll promise to give it to you. Most important thing in the world, and we're done. If you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, today is your opportunity to trust in Jesus. It's not about joining our church. not about becoming a Baptist. not about being baptized. It's about knowing for sure your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home. Until then, you'll be riddled with fear and doubt for the future. But if you're here today and you know for sure that you're saved, you know for sure you're a child of God, let's trust our Father this week. Push worry to the side. Let tomorrow worry about tomorrow. Let's just live and enjoy today and trust our Father for everything that comes in the future. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. 
Join us this Sunday. You belong here.